Good morning. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. In about 15 minutes, Governor Brian Kemp is going to join me for a coronavirus update. We've got two cases in Georgia. Uh, He'll be bringing us the latest on Friday. Vice President Pence is going to be here uh, to also uh, bring us an update nationally on what's going on right now. Uh, having a freshly qualified for the United States Senate for a second term. Uh, Senator David Perdue joining me. Good morning to you. Good morning, Eric. How you doing? I'm great. How about yourself? I'm good. Now, so you qualified yesterday. Uh, this has kind of turned into a, a big ceremonial thing in Atlanta with people that they wait until the last minute and, and do a big fanfare. You just went on in there and, and decided to go on and qualify without all the pomp and circumstance some of these people bring to it. I, I appreciate you doing that, by the way. <laughs> well, I'm an outsider to this whole process. I don't quite understand the pomp and circumstance. I don't think our founders would either. You know, for the first uh, 124 years of our country's existence, Eric, you know, the Senate and the House up here only work 45 days a year in Washington. And uh, when we started electing senators instead of them being appointed in the states, that's when they changed to start working a longer term. It wasn't until air conditioning came along that actually the Senate and the House up here worked during the summer. So. This is never, I don't think they ever intended, the founders ever intended to be quite the way we have it today. I suddenly have a Green New Deal proposal the Republicans should make. Turn off the air conditioner in D.C. I can't wait. <laughs> no, so you've you got an open forum here now from the North Georgia mountains to the Florida line. Why run for a second term? You know, I characterize what you just said as from hey hire to high wash. There you go. <laughs> I've been all over this state, obviously, since I was a kid, and I love being from Georgia. Um, I felt convicted when I ran back in 14 that the country was headed in the wrong direction, and I was right. We had the lowest economic output in U.S. history for eight years. We had de- demolished the military. We had backed up from our commitments overseas. We were you know, giving people like Iran a pathway to a nuclear bomb. I mean, bad things were happening out there. And the second thing is I saw this debt crisis, and I just felt like with so few business people in Congress, I had to do it. And uh, I didn't know if I'd win, but we, you know, I think my first poll, Eric, was 3% with a 4% margin of error. You know, seriously, <laughs> it was, uh, as an outsider, it was a whole, whole new deal. Running for re-election is a hard thing to do. I, I mean, I, I did not take this lightly. I did, my wife and I talked about it and prayed about it, and we decided that the work wasn't done yet. Now, you know, I believe in term limits as well, so I'm not dominated by this, this drive to get re-elected. I'm dominated by getting results like President Trump is. Now, you mentioned the the debt crisis, and it, it seems like it just keeps getting worse, and there, neither side really has an incentive to rein in the spending right now. Now, of course, we've got the coronavirus outbreak, and we're spending billions to fight that. Does it, do you sometimes look at it and, and wonder what on earth can we do up here with uh, the divide in government and even a lot of Republicans who say they want small government not actually voting for it? You know, the irony is that the drive to get reelected is a lot easier if you just give money away. Mm -hmm. And that's been going on for 50 years. The problem is, is that we have two two budgets up here. We have a budget that has all the drama everybody knows about, but that's only about one point three of the total five trillion dollars that we spend as a federal government. You know, the other three point seven is mandatory. The discretionary part has the military, the VA and all discretionary programs. That's ag. That's all of our uh, safety nets, everything else. And so we're spending less as a percentage of the economy on that portion than we were in 2011. So President Trump has come in and drained the swamp a little bit. We've fired 9,000 people at the VA for not doing their jobs. 
The problem is over and mandatory. That's Social Security, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, pension and benefits for federal employees, and the interest on the debt. And we need to save those programs because Medicare's trust fund goes to zero in six short years, Eric. You talk about this on your show all the time. This is a crisis um, of our own making. We can fix it, uh, and we just need to get on it right now. You mentioned uh, divided the partisanship up here. That keeps us from, from really trying to do these big things. So hopefully if we get Trump in a second term, we'll be able to get this done. Well, and, and you know, it, it seems like to be they refer to it as the third rail in politics. And I suppose it really is a lot of you guys who actually raise the issue. You become deeply unpopular with core constituencies in Washington and lobbyists by by daring to even raise it and, and become demagogued. I mean, let's not forget even Paul Ryan, who wanted to make some reforms. The Democrats filmed ads of him shoving grandma off a cliff. Well, they've already done ads against me in my first campaign. Right about taking somebody's health care away or their Social Security. We're not wanted, we don't want to do that. No Republican wants to do that. But what we've done by growing the economy, we've lowered the debt curve, honestly, by $2 trillion against what it would be. But if we don't fix Social Security and Medicare, and by that I mean save it, um, our, our debt could go to 30, 35 to $37 trillion in the next 10 years. That, can't, that just can't happen. The world won't let that happen. So we, this is serious. We've got to get on it. Growing the economy is the first step. Trump's on that. We've done that. Uh, it's moving. The coronavirus is a is a problem, and we're gonna you know you're gonna hear the governor and others talk about that later in your show. But <clears throat> uh, the economy is moving very well. In the last two and a half years, three years really, two and a half million people have pulled themselves out of poverty because we've created opportunities. And actually, I believe if we can get momentum and keep it keep the momentum over the next four years, we can do a lot more in terms of getting more people to work and also fixing things like immigration and our infrastructure. Senator, I've picked up a couple more stations down down along south the South Georgia line, and I hear from those stations that the farmers down there they're starting to get some of the federal aid that had been held up over Hurricane Michael. But there's still a lot of frustration down there with the federal government helping farmers through some of these situations. And now, of course, the mild winter puts in jeopardy whether or not the peaches are going to be good, and farmers are starting to stress about that. And then you've got all the rain; it's flooding fields. What are you, what are you looking at as, as a senator down in South Georgia when it comes to dealing with the situation? with farmers well what everything you just mentioned is is what farmers have to deal with unfortunately uh, that's what makes it such a god-given uh, career uh, unlike what michael bloomberg right. says you don't just put a seed in the ground throw water at it and then everything works out fine i mean any of us that ever worked on a farm know better than that um, georgia farmers are the best in the in the world really we've got great dirt we've got great people normally we have pretty good weather and it works We've had some really outstanding uh, travesties happen here in the last couple of years. I'm very frustrated. The bureaucracy is still alive and well. The Secretary of Agriculture has been working feverishly. The governor, uh, I, uh, others have been really on this. It just shows that the deep state is here, and uh, it takes a long time to, to, to deal with that. The bureaucracy is what slowed all this down. I give President Trump a lot of credit, though, because he broke through that logjam in the very beginning, and, or else we'd still be sitting here debating how much we could give to the farmers. Listen, Senator, I, I would love to spend more time with you, but we've got the wild card coronavirus situation, and we've got the, the governor and, and the, the commissioner from Department of Public Health coming in here in a little bit to give us an update. But, man, I appreciate you stopping by, and I sure appreciate what you do and, and look forward to anything I can do to help you. I'm just excited to have you on the ballot. Well, Eric, look, thanks so much. You're, you're one of the few people around that get the truth out, and that I think it's so important. I get asked this question all the time. Where do I go to get my facts? Where do I get information? 
And I, you know, I call them, I point them to your show and a few others that, that really are focused on facts, regardless of the political dimension of it. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. Good luck to you. Senator you, David Perdue uh, from Washington, D.C., uh, running for re-election. He qualified yesterday. Kelly Leffler as well qualifying for re-election. And I apologize to him and his team that uh, I, I wanted to spend a little more time with him this morning. But with the coronavirus situation, uh, we've got Governor Brian Kemp. He's going to be stopping by here in about five or six minutes. I'm trying to do good clock management to make sure we can get the governor in here as well and bring us up to speed. Let me tell you what I know on this issue uh, thus far. It is that we've got two people in Georgia and Fulton County who've tested positive for coronavirus. Now, Anthony Falke, who is the head of the, the National Institutes of Health and the National Institutes for, for Allergies and Disease, he is now saying he's actually starting to think that the mortality rate uh, for or fatality rate rather for COVID-19 is going to be far less because a lot of people are getting mild symptoms. One of the uh, red flags that some other healthcare professionals are raising is that we don't yet know, uh, because the virus is aggressively mutating, whether or not uh, that will stay the case. We know, for example, from the Spanish flu outbreak in 1917 and 1918, that the initial wave of the virus was rather mild. People got flu-like symptoms and survived. And then it was the second round that proved to be disastrous, killing millions of people worldwide. No one's expecting that of COVID-19 right now. Don't 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 panic here. Nobody's expecting that. They just don't know in, in this first round season of what's going to go on. What we do know for certain is that here in Georgia, we've got two people. Uh, one of them was in Milan, Italy, came back to the United States and within a couple of days developed some symptoms, had enough foresight to think I might be infected, called their doctor. Now, this is this is a brilliant, brilliant American citizen. I don't know who this person is, but they need to be praised. They, they won't give the name out, but this person really should be praised. Came back from Milan, largely decided to stay home just to be on the safe side. When he developed symptoms, called his doctor, explained he had been in Milan, needed to get tested, but didn't want to potentially infect anyone, drove himself to the doctor's office, went in through a back door. Uh, avoided everyone. The, the clinician there was prepared to test and, and keep themselves secure. He was tested, found positive home. Uh, his spouse now has coronavirus as well. They are quarantined in Fulton County in Atlanta in their home with the rest of their family who he came into contact with uh, and where they will be for the next couple of weeks. Uh, but that is what you want to do. Uh, that was well done on their part. Uh, but uh, there's more. And then of course, he was on an airplane with other people uh, while he was infected. And we know that the disease can be contagious prior to symptoms developing. Governor Kemp is going to be joining me here in a few minutes. So I want to step out now uh, to go on to commercial break. And when we come back, we'll be joined by Governor Kemp's team to give us an update. Welcome back from the North Georgia Mountains to the Florida line covering the whole state of Georgia. Now it is Eric Erickson and the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Joining me from Atlanta, Governor Brian Kemp. Good morning. Not the conversation I was hoping to have with you right now. Uh, good morning, Eric. So what can you what can you give us as the latest on the coronavirus situation here in the state? Well, it's pretty much what we said last night. We do have two confirmed cases. We've had people working 24-7 since we found out about this late yesterday afternoon to, uh, you know, do the investigation. Uh, the, the folks are doing well, very mild symptoms. Uh, symptoms. They're 
confined at home with uh, other family members to make sure that they're not spreading the virus. Uh, we're, we're backtracking now to see what kind of contacts they've had. But I would just tell people the risk remains very low for most Americans. Obviously, people that are elderly uh, have, you know, existing health conditions and me- are medically fragile are, are the ones that we're really worried about if, if you know, something if they get the virus, much like it's happened in, in Washington. So we just need people to continue to follow the guidelines that everyone's saying. You know, if you're sick, stay at home, call your health care provider, don't go to the doctor's office first, give them a call, let them talk it through with you, you know, talk through your travel history, if any, what your symptoms are, and then they can develop a way to get you into the office and, and do testing if it's warranted. Uh, so that's kind of where we are. Uh, hopefully we'll know a lot more toward the end of the day or, or tomorrow, but we are literally uh, working 24-7. But I will I will just say this, and I'll give it back to you, Eric. This is something that we've been preparing for for weeks now. Uh, we've got a Dr. Toomey and her team at the Georgia Department of Public Health. She's got a lot of experience, um, you know, decades in public health, and we've got a great team around her, so I'm really confident about the response so far and what we're doing to prepare for the future, whatever that may be. I was really struck last night during the press conference uh, by both you and Dr. Toomey noting that uh, this patient who had the coronavirus actually had the foresight uh, after uh, coming back from Milan, Italy, to to largely seclude himself and, and go to the doctor and call ahead and make sure he didn't interact with other people. Really, just a, a, whoever it is, just a super diligent person to begin with, they, they took those steps themselves. Could not have asked for more out of this individual um, and the health care provider. You know, we have been in contact. Dr. Toomey's team has been in contact with, you know, doctors, the medical community, hospitals, uh, county health uh, officials to make sure people knew what to do if this event happened and the medical provider did exactly what they were supposed to. Uh, they tested the individual. Uh, they notify the Department of Public Health, the, people, the folks are doing home confinement, and, uh, you know, we, we couldn't ask for anything better. And that's really what, what the message is to Jordans out there. If you run into the same type scenario or if you have traveled to Italy or, you know, South Korea lately and certainly China, then you need to be really aware that you're more susceptible to this than, you know, most Jordans are and, and to just be cognizant of, you know, what the symptoms are. And if you start feeling bad, you know, just stay at home and, and make those phone calls for us. I, I was struck last night. One of the questions in the press conference was uh, about just going and getting the itinerary of, of the individual's flight and, and, and start reaching out to those people. And there's a story in the New York Times today that it, it's not actually that simple for the government to go to Delta or whichever airline and say, hand me a list of all the people and addresses who were on this flight, which to some degree slows down the process of checking and, and making sure no one else on the flight had it or or got it from this individual well that's one of the reasons we wanted to do that last night so you just didn't have misinformation out there on the internet or in the press that it was coming from us it's like dr toomey said we are not concerned about the individuals that were on that flight because the the patient did not have symptoms at the time they were uh, flying it happened a couple of days after they were back home so we don't believe you know there's any risk for those passenger passengers um, so, you know, they're running down the leads that they need to right now. And we'll certainly, you know, we, we're going to be transparent. I mean, this is what it is. The best way we can deal with it is for people to have the facts and, and know and, and do what we're asking of them. And, and we'll continue to do so.
Governor, listen, I, I know you've had a busy day, and thank you very much for stopping by and talking to us about this. I think the vice president's going to be joining me on Friday. I, it just real quick for you, I understand yesterday you did talk to the vice president as well? I did. Uh, we were on a task force uh, meeting uh, with some of, some of our group with a video conference. I think there was 52 other governors and you know governors of states and territories on that call. Uh, went very well. We had, um, you know, a task force meeting at the Capitol yesterday at three o'clock. And then a couple hours after that, maybe two and a half hours, we found out about the confirmed cases. And then I spoke to the vice president shortly after that, just to make sure he was aware of that. We had a great conversation. He was filling me in on some of the things that they continue to do at the federal level, you know, pledge their full support and resources. So I feel really good about what the administration has been doing and what they're doing now. There was a scene yesterday I saw on, on social media of, of empty store shelves in northern Atlanta, some people starting to panic and, and go out. I, I'm assuming people don't need to go out and buy buy grocery stores out of all their all their goods. No, they, they don't need to panic. I think, you know, obviously having some food at home if you get sick where you don't have to go out is a, is a wise thing. But, um, you know, I would do that within reason, continue to practice great hygiene practices if you're, you know, out and about in the public and just be smart about what you're doing, you know, doing in your daily lives and with your, your kids and otherwise. And just keep an eye on them. If people start feeling sick, then, you know, stay at home and call your doctor. Governor Kemp, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Have a great day, Eric. You you. too. Governor Brian Kemp. So just to review, we've got two people in Fulton County, Georgia, who have now tested positive for the coronavirus, COVID-19. One of the two individuals, they're they're a couple, as best we we don't really know a lot about them. The governor can't give details. In fact, the governor doesn't know all the details himself about the individuals because of uh, federal health care privacy laws. What we do know are the essentials that are needed to kind of figure out the parameters here. We, We have a couple. We presume a married couple. One of the two of them went to Milan. We presume, based on the way they were talking last night, it was the husband had gone to Milan and returned. Uh, We don't know whether it was a direct flight to Atlanta or an indirect flight. We presume it was a Delta flight direct, uh, but again, we don't know. Uh, The individual was home, had no symptoms for several days, developed symptoms uh, at their home had the foresight enough to know having gone to Milan and come back that they should probably minimize contact Uh, when symptoms developed reached out to their primary care physician explained they had been in Milan uh, and they probably needed to be tested for coronavirus drove themselves to the doctor's office the doctor allowed them through a secure back door area away from all the other patients Uh, the doctor the clinician who performed the test already properly dressed to keep themselves from getting the virus, uh, covered this individual's mouth to make sure that any coughing or anything would would, would not spread, uh, put him into a room, did the test. Uh, the test came back positive, uh, sent the person home, notified public health authorities. The person has agreed voluntarily in, in quarantine. Their spouse is now tested positive as well for the coronavirus. Uh, they are, as the governor just said, quarantined with their family who also came into contact with both individuals in their home uh, for a 14-day incubation period, which we now know there's been a lot of back and forth on how long it could possibly take. Most clinicians are now saying it is a 14-day full incubation period for a lot of people. Uh, And so they're going to be there under, uh, under watchful eyes of the state to make sure they don't leave. 
And anyone they've come into contact with in the past uh, few days, they're going to work backwards and try to find those people. But again, the government cannot just go to Delta and say, give us a list of all the names who are on the flight with this individual. Uh, They're not allowed to. And in fact, there's uh, legislation now being drafted in Congress potentially to change this. But the state of Georgia is not allowed to do that. So they're having to do other ways possible. Uh, There's your coronavirus update. Got a little more when we come back. Thanks to the governor and Senator Purdue for coming in this morning on all this stuff. All righty, let's review, shall we? Uh, we've got coronavirus in Georgia. Now, I, I, I want to say a couple of things here, and, and we will get into Super Tuesday. Uh, that's That really is the big story. But it, there are a couple of things I want to I, I wanna say to you first, because one, I, I've gotten some complaints from people that I am spending way too much time on on the coronavirus situation that it's a minor situation and the you've always got to find balance in how much you cover news stories like this and the reason you've got to find the balance is because it is an urgent situation in that this is new you don't want to scare people you don't want to to overplay the situation, but you also don't want to underplay the situation. Where do you find the line in this becomes very difficult for a lot of people in the media. Uh, and, you know, I've got a, a number of friends of mine who say this is overblown. It's no big deal. The media is scaring you. R- remember, if you will, in 2014 and 2015 here in Georgia. And for those of you listening nationally, you'll remember these stories. In 2014, uh, towards the end of 2014, snow came into Georgia, and it was treated as a very, very, very big deal. And it turned out not to be. And a lot of people laughed it off and thought it was silly, uh, thought, thought it was a waste of time, thought it was an overreaction. And in January or February of 2015, I believe it was, uh, the ice storm, snowstorm came through. And they governor, the, the government made it a big deal again, but they waited because the storm at first was coming in and, and they presumed it would be rain and everywhere except for the North Georgia mountains. And then suddenly it exploded. And it became not just ice, but it became snow. We at our house in Macon, Uh, got about five inches of snow. It was actually between South Atlanta and the Griffin area, south of 75. You only got about an inch of snow, and then suddenly it picked up again uh, with with the moisture flow in middle Georgia, and the kids were out of school for multiple days. It was a wreck, Uh, and people were stuck on the interstate in Atlanta, and it was because the government didn't want to scare people, didn't want to shut down businesses if it was an overreaction. The weather system broke late towards ice. And people were stranded. I literally started my radio show in Atlanta. You know, so I do my nine to noon show statewide, and then I do four to six just in Atlanta. And I started my four to six show at 3 p.m., and I did not get off the air until 7 a.m. the next day because people who were supposed to come on couldn't get to the office. And so I literally sat at my desk from 3 in the afternoon until sunrise the next day. And just fielded phone calls from people stranded on the interstate saying, I'm stuck. Here's the mile marker I'm at. Uh, my insulin has run low. I'm a diabetic. Can someone come come help? 
Uh, I, we had several of those calls, as a matter of fact. We, we had another call with people who were stuck in their car with their kids and needed rescue, and people were listening to me on the radio. Uh, in fact, I'm, I've got a buddy who I know did it. He had me on his radio, and he and several friends with four-wheelers and CBs or, or walkie-talkies were going out and trying to help people stranded on the road in, in their area if they heard people calling in. And we fielded phone calls all night long from people, and it was just me keeping people company on the radio who were stuck. And they needed help. And and as a result of that, the next storm that came through, the, the government made sure that everyone knew everybody shut down and it wasn't a big deal. Uh, but there, there was where do you find the balance in this? It's very hard. It is also very hard because everyone knows that China is lying. And China is where we have the overwhelming amount of data on this. I mean, let me give you right now, just for perspective here, so that you understand uh, why we're in the situation we're in and, and why everyone is focusing on this. Uh, it, it really is important for you to let me give you the updated numbers as of 939 this morning. Uh, and th these numbers will be revised here in the next hour. Uh, there are 92,196 confirmed uh, COVID-19 cases worldwide, 3,129 deaths, 48,175 uh, recovered people. When I went on air yesterday, there were 66 confirmed cases in the United States. This morning, there are 105. Yesterday, when I went on the air, there were two deaths in the United States from the coronavirus. Today, there are six. So we've had more than double the number of deaths uh, in the last 24 hours from the coronavirus. And so six, so that's a 5.7% mortality rate in the United States from the coronavirus. Only 105 people thus far have gotten it. But the problem with the coronavirus and the reason people are raising awareness of it is any one of you listening to me right now, I don't care where you are in the state of Georgia, the odds of you getting COVID-19 are actually very, very small. And so you're listening to this and you're thinking, why is he spending such an amount of time talking about a virus that none of us are going to get? The reason is because the odds are very, very small that any of you are going to get it. But if any of you do get it, the odds are everyone in your immediate circle of friends and community are going to get it as well because it spreads rapidly in communities. And that becomes the problem. Uh, luckily in this country, uh, most people have foresight to go to the doctor, give them a heads up and make sure that they understand. I mean, take, take again, the, the coronavirus patient in Atlanta had enough foresight. He came back from Milan and thought, hmm, I've been in a city where there's a deadly virus spreading and I should probably not go anywhere in case I've gotten it because it takes a while for symptoms to show up. So he stayed home. He developed symptoms. He calls his doctor and says, I've been in Milan. I think I have COVID-19. Uh, can you please test me, but minimize the presence to other people at the doctor's office? You, you heard the governor. You, you could hear it in the governor's voice how impressed he was that the individual did that. And the doctor's office as well took the precautions to let the individual in from the back door, uh, sanitized everything, made sure the doctor's staff were safe with this happened. Uh, it, that was a good thing. It, it was well thought of, but not everyone does that. I want to tell you about patient 31. 
There are 5,186 people in South Korea now who have COVID-19. 5,186 people in South Korea have COVID-19. Originally, Korea had 30 people who tested positive. Actually, they, they had one person who tested positive, came back from Wuhan, China, and then that person had interacted with many people, and you had 10 more people got it for 11 total, and then other people coming back and forth, you wound up getting 30 people, and then there's the 31st person. We don't know how patient 31 got COVID-19. She had not traveled to China. It is a she. We don't know. What we do know is that patient 31 went to the doctor not feeling well, and the doctor told patient 31 she should get tested for COVID-19. And do you know what patient 31 did? Patient 31 went to church, went to a large church of several thousand people in Daegu, South Korea, and then went to an all-you-can-eat buffet with a friend despite having fever, despite not feeling well, went to an all-you-can-eat buffet with a friend, still did not get tested and went back for a second church service of several thousand people. They can trace 1,200 cases of COVID-19 to that one individual. And a number of those people have died. I actually, I told a friend of mine last night, I, I think he might be listening, a quarter of those people have died. That's that's not actually true. Uh, it is less than that have died. There are 28 total deaths in Korea, but some of the people that this person came into contact with had moved out of Korea. And it does look like of the 1,200 people, uh, more than 50 of them have died. Um, some of them having gone back to China and elsewhere, 28 total deaths in South Korea. But this patient 31, they can trace twelve over 1,200 cases of the coronavirus to this one individual. That's how highly contagious the disease is. Now, increasingly, we are seeing that the disease is not as bad as we thought in terms of fatality. And in fact, the, the younger you are, the more likely you are to be a carrier and not actually have symptoms of the disease. And that's somewhat problematic. Y'all, I had some crazy person call me in conspiracy theory mode or not call me, uh, direct message me on Instagram when conspiracy theory mode that uh, what, what actually is happening is China invented this disease to infect kids as carriers and then wipe out the adult populations to benefit the Chinese government and the communists. I, I'm serious that someone actually sent me that as a direct message on Instagram, conspiracy theory, cuckoo time. And um, that's, that's deeply problematic. The issue is the older you get, if you're above 65, uh, you have a 15% mortality right Right now in the United States, the mortality rate is 5%. Globally, they expect it. Uh, Anthony Fauci from the, the National Institutes of Health expect once we realize who all got the disease and didn't die, uh, that the fatality rate will actually be around 1% or less. It could be more like a terrible seasonal pandemic flu, which is actually good news, believe it or not. Uh, 
The problem is that right now, uh, there are a lot of people getting it. They don't recognize the symptoms. They don't know they have it, and they don't seek medical treatment until it's too late. They don't notify everyone. And so when it gets into your community, the odds of you getting it are actually really, really slim to none. That's why even Governor Kemp is saying you don't need to panic. You don't need to rush out. And there was a a video of someone, and I forget where it was. It was in Gwinnett County, Georgia, uh, in a grocery store where all the shelves were empty. It was like we had a a flake of snow on the ground. People went in. All the milk was gone. All the bread was gone. All the beer was gone. All the soft drinks were gone. All the chips were gone. All the pasta was gone. All, most of the canned goods were gone. You know, it's actually kind of funny. I've always wanted to go in in one of these mass outbreaks like this, one of these mass panic modes and see what are people not buying when, when, when you've got this mass panic? Oh, my God, we're all going to die. Go to the grocery store. What is it that people don't actually buy when they go to the grocery store? Huh? Bob, no one's buying the fermented artichoke or <laughs> On the international aisle, we still got some Marmite and lemon curd over here. Nobody's buying that stuff. (laughs) But all the frozen food, gone. The bread was gone. The milk was gone. All of the beer. There was not a can of beer left in the grocery store. That would be my first go-to item. Uh, I mean, it, it was all gone, and it was it was in North Atlanta. Uh, people panicking o- over the COVID nineteen, and this was before there were two cases announced in Atlanta. People had panicked and, and had gone into their grocery store. There's no reason to do that. And some people are naturally prone to panic and anxiety, and I get that. Uh, but what if we? What if the media wasn't actually uh, talking to you about this? We we have this. We've got a disease again in the United States right now. There's a five percent mortality rate. That number will come down. the The six people were elderly in in Seattle who died. Uh, that impacts it greatly. Uh, I think some of them had been on the cruise ship. Uh, that's the problem. Seven have recovered, six have died in the United States. We've got 105 cases right now. No, I'm sorry, 106 cases right now. Um, The number is going to come down. But if the media and the government did not tell you what was going on, uh, there would be as many people convinced of conspiracy theory as there are right now. Oh, there's the there's the strange. We have this man. You know, this actually happened. What two years ago? We had a big flu outbreak. If you'll recall, two years ago, the the flu vaccine did not actually contemplate one of the strains of flu that was going around, and so there was a massive flu outbreak two years ago. And there actually were conspiracy theories out there then about something going on and and with the government and and the flu. We would be seeing this. So everybody's got to be educated on where the coronavirus is and what it's doing and where it's spreading in this country, because if it gets into your community, it sweeps through your community. So you want to be proactive. You want to be advised of where it is and just how bad it is. And as more and more information comes out, what appears to be happening is we're finding out uh, that the survivability rate is actually going up. The more the fatality rate is going down, and that's all very good. But we also have to spread awareness of it. And I've gotten so many people now who have emailed me and said, stop talking about it. It's not a big deal. It actually is a very big deal. And I have to admit as well, I'm biased. And you need to understand my bias. I've got lung damage. My wife has lung cancer. Were we to get it in our house, it would probably not end well. And so I'm a little more concerned about random virus for which we have no immunity or vaccine than some of you are. 
and some of you are are in the mode of, oh, well, this is overhyped. The media overhypes everything. It's all about ratings, and you're more skeptical than you should be. Perhaps I'm a little bit more concerned than I should be, but there's a balance in there somewhere that we, we can together get. Uh, but it does me no good to downplay when the government is saying, hey, you need to raise awareness about this. And I've got a statewide radio program here in Georgia where the governor can come on one-stop shop and talk to every citizen in Georgia who's listening to the radio. Uh, he can come on and do this, and that's good, and that's a good thing, and that's that's what we need. On Friday, Vice President Pence is going to do the same thing. Vice President uh, Pence is going to be joining me on Friday here on the program to also give an update on the coronavirus. He's on the task force. Now, here is Dr. Anthony Fauci. He is the, the guy everyone respects. He is the head of the National Institutes of Health. Remember last week, the media said he was muzzled. He wasn't actually muzzled. Uh, he had to scale back appearances to coordinate with the vice president's office. But here he is on TV last night on CNN. Well, Allison, you know, I, it's always dangerous to make predictions, definitive predictions. But I'm concerned that you're going to see a lot more cases. I mean, certainly when you have a number of cases that you've identified and they've been in the community for a while, you're going to wind up seeing a lot more cases than you would have predicted. So my concern is, as the next week or two or three go by, we're going to see a lot more community-related cases, and that's of great concern. And here he is with Chris Cuomo last night. One of the things that we are hearing more and more, I think this virus has been here a long time, and they're not telling us how long it's been here. It's been here for months or longer, and there are numbers that we haven't heard yet. What do you know? about when the virus established itself here and how much spread there has been and the accuracy of the numbers. You know, Chris, it's almost certain that it established itself here on a travel-related case uh, from China. Uh, how long it was and that the, that the situation evolved to have other cases, it's tough to say, but I can say with some degree of confidence, uh, I don't really think that there was a lot of infection going on under the radar screen before we knew about the first infection. I just don't think that's the case. How confident are you in the numbers that we're being given right now? Well, the numbers that are given right now of the people that are recognized, I would not at all be surprised, Chris, and I don't think there's anybody that would disagree, that there are going to be cases that are out there now that we haven't yet recognized, that we, we will soon recognize. I think it's, it's tomorrow, the next day, or the next day, we're going to see cases. And the reason I say that is that whenever you have community spread, which means by definition, you don't have any direct link to any other known infection. They just appear in the community. The fact that you have community spread almost by definition means there are going to be more that you're not aware of. And that's the reason why the kind of aggressive identification, isolation, and importantly, contact tracing that the CDC is collaborating with the state and local health authorities mm -hmm. is extremely important, extremely important. That's what's going on, folks. Uh, the virus, we've got two cases in Georgia, is nothing to be alarmed about, but it's very much something to be aware of. Uh, what do you do to prep? How do you get prepared? And does washing your hands, is that really it? Well, we'll discuss that when we get back. In all of this talk about coronavirus, I just want to be very clear with you, very, very clear that no Democrats and no members of the media are politicizing this. Our, our, our moral and social betters in the press have told us only people at Fox News are politicizing the coronavirus. We have a crisis of coronavirus and President Trump has no plan. What, what he's doing is 
late, too late, anemic. Mr. Trump is late. As soon as this virus started cropping up elsewhere in the world, we should have been on top of it. Do you trust and should Americans trust President Trump to deal with this crisis? No. This is an administration that does not believe in science, and so I'm not surprised that uh, he's completely uh, clueless. Look, the president we know is not a scientist, and that's a nice way to put it. He doesn't even believe in science. This president hasn't allowed his scientists to speak. The idea that the experts are not allowed to speak, the president has silenced them, Dr. Fauci. I'm not being muzzled. I was cleared here, and here I am talking to you, and I'll give you the whole truth the way I always have. I've been talking about this for a while. They haven't, they don't even have a test kit. Well, we've already tested over 3,600 people here in the United States. I'm not sure what he meant when he said there's no lab kit. You know, the idea that Donald Trump said just several days ago this was a Democratic hoax, what in God's name is he talking about? Has he no shame? The Trump administration has been asleep at the wheel. We know he doesn't have the capacity or the competence to handle such moments. I cannot think of a worse person to put in charge of dealing with this coronavirus. And his response has been pathetic. This is not a democratic hoax. This is incompetence on the part of the president of the United States. And his incompetence really does put us all at risk. President Trump, good morning. There's a, there's a pandemic of coronavirus. Where are you? Where is your plan? But no, no, none of them are politicizing this. No member of the media is politicizing this. No Democrat is politicizing this. Nope. No, it's just people on Fox News. The media tells us it's just people on Fox News who are politicizing this. Pay no attention to the cartoon in Politico that uh, was of a man committing suicide when he found out Donald Trump was in charge of dealing with the coronavirus. Nope, nobody, nobody would politicize the coronavirus here except Republicans, according to the media. When we come back, it is Super Tuesday. What is Super Tuesday anyway, and why does it matter, and what's going to happen to Bernie Sanders? We'll discuss. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here this Super Tuesday, March 3rd. It is six after the hour. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. You can always get me on social media at EW Erickson, uh, and that's whether it's Twitter or Facebook or YouTube or Instagram is the best. You people should be following me on Instagram at EW Erickson. Uh, that that's where you you see the non political. I don't like to do politics on Instagram. I like to to put up pictures of cooking. I roasted a great chicken the other day. I put that stuff up. My recipes and and photography pictures and all that. Years ago, a couple of years ago, my wife decided that uh, if I didn't change hobbies from cooking to photography, we were all going to get fat. So she enrolled me in a class on to learn how to take pictures and now I take pictures of my food and we still get fat or well I do because now she's going to the gym in any event uh, I'm watching her I mean eating quinoa good lord uh, she's gotten in shape okay we got to discuss Super Tuesday. Super Tuesday is today. At the bottom of this hour, though, uh, Jerry Henry from uh, Georgia Carey is going to be with me. And this is relevant and important. And the reason it is relevant and important is because uh, there is legislation pending in the state Senate. Uh, Senate Bill uh, 357. E- easy to remember. It's a gun bill. and It's a 357 number. Uh, and this would allow churches to allow certain classes of people to carry openly or or actually concealed, rather, 
in churches as opposed to an all or nothing approach. Uh, I thought it sounded like a great piece of legislation. Georgia Kerry disagrees, and I'm a big fan of the organization. And so I wanted uh, Jerry to be able to come on and, and give their take on this, on why they're opposed to it. Uh, now, uh, Bill Heath is the sponsor from Bremen, and he is actually going to join me on my evening program today to talk about it. He couldn't be here this morning, and so I'll play my interview with Jerry this evening and then also uh, play uh, the interview with uh, Bill Heath, and then I'll have his audio in the morning. Also, if you weren't here in the first hour, Governor Kip came by to talk about the coronavirus in Georgia. There are two cases in Georgia. And the governor wanted to bring us an update on what we know of those two individuals. And you can go to uh, you can text the word show to three, three, seven, seven, seven. If you want to listen to that with our podcast, it'll be up in the next couple hours. Um, you'll be able to re-listen to that. If you're a subscriber to my Substack, I've already pushed it out and you can listen to it there. Um, if you want to see the update on the coronavirus nationwide or international, text the word data to 33777. Text data to 33777. What will happen is you'll get a link back to this Johns Hopkins University dashboard, but also you will get a link back uh, to where I've put gone on and put the Governor Kemp audio. And if you want to subscribe, you can go on and listen to Governor Kemp, but you should be listening to me right now because it's Super Tuesday. And Super Tuesday is a big deal around the nation. And I wanted to see, walk you through Super Tuesday and what's at stake for the Democrats, because nothing's really at stake for the president here. Uh, is some of these states aren't even going to have races now because uh, Bill Weld and Joe Walsh and the rest didn't qualify. For example, uh, the state of Virginia has canceled its Republican presidential primary. There are people out who are blasting the president and the Republicans over this, saying they're shutting out people like uh, Bill well, they're shutting out people like uh, Joe Walsh and that this is unfair, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is that, and, and this is missed by, you know, it's really something, all the people who say the president lies and, and the Republicans now have a problem with the truth. It's really interesting to me the number of people who are peddling the mythology that Virginia and a few other states have canceled their Republican primary to keep people from opposing the president. You know the actual truth in Virginia, and I'm not making this up, the actual truth in Virginia is that neither Joe Walsh nor Bill Weld qualified for the ballot. So the only person on the ballot in Virginia was the president, so there was no reason to have a Republican primary when the only person who would be on the ballot would be the president of the United States. There was just no point in it. So they canceled it. Now, what's at stake? Well, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, and Beto O'Rourke joined Joe Biden in Texas last night to endorse Biden. Now, it's notable because Texas is actually very close in the polling. Bernie Sanders has a four-point lead in Texas. This could push Joe Biden into the lead as the uh, establishment wing of the Democratic Party rallies. I suspect we're going to see calls for Bloomberg to drop out tomorrow uh, in order to stop Sanders because the polling now clearly shows that Mike Bloomberg is hurt Joe Biden, not Joe Biden hurting Mike Bloomberg. Joe Biden would actually be in the lead in North Carolina, Virginia, and Texas if Mike Bloomberg were not on the ballot. So Bloomberg, ironically, is helping Sanders to a degree. Uh, Also, I do think it's notable that as of yesterday, Mike Bloomberg did not have a single ad booked after tomorrow. You know, I'm getting uh, I'm getting blasted. For having Mike Bloomberg commercials during this program. Now, I don't run ads from candidates. 
the reason I don't run ads from candidates is it is a it's a hassle for local stations for me to run ads from candidates. Uh, I've got to file all sorts of paperwork for local stations. Local stations have to file paperwork. It's just a pain in the butt. Um, I will run outside groups and, and issue stuff, and, and I'm trying to figure out what paperwork I actually need to file with there, but it's not nearly as burdensome as if a candidate were to run it. And if a candidate were to run, I and the stations that they're on would have to give them the lowest cost ad. But here's the thing. The reason I bring all that up and give you way more detail on that than you ever would want is that it is against the law. Whichever radio station you are listening to me on right now, I don't care where you are, if you're listening to me on a terrestrial radio station, you are probably hearing a Mike Bloomberg ad during commercial breaks. And what you need to understand is it is absolutely against the law for your local radio station to deny Mike Bloomberg his advertisement. I don't care if your local station is called Right Wing Radio and only plays uh, me, Mark Levin, Sean Hannity, Glenn Beck, Rush Limbaugh, Ben Shapiro, and the like, and never has a a left-wing voice on and won't even run news headlines uh, because there might be a liberal bias in the news. That station, if it is broadcast over the air, cannot tell Mike Bloomberg to go take a hike. Because it is a terrestrial radio station that uses the airwaves of the United States and TV as well, TV stations, TV and radio stations are prohibited by law from denying a presidential candidate uh, an ad run. Not only do you have to give Mike Bloomberg space to run his ads, you have to give him the cheapest rate possible if he's within 60 days of the election. So we can't turn it down. So stop complaining to your local conservative talk station or your local Christian music station uh, that you're hearing a Mike Bloomberg ad and you don't like the guy. There's nothing we can do about it short of shutting down the radio station. And even then, Bloomberg, I'm sure, would buy it and, and run his ads nonstop. That's just the way it works. But will Bloomberg continue to run ads? Uh, late yesterday, after 5 o'clock, after really the close of business yesterday, word started leaking out that he was buying more ads. But he largely had stopped buying advertisements uh, and and looked like he was going to go away after today because he's not going to win anything. But now he's doubling down on this. Here he is. He was at a Fox News town hall last night, uh, but also he sat down with CNN yesterday and said this. Jeff Bloomberg, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. We're on the eve of Super Tuesday. The yep. stakes are high for you. Yep. Tomorrow night, you're going to have to convince voters that you're, you're the guy. So how do you convince them that you you are the one. What do you say to them? Two things. I can beat Donald Trump, and I don't know that any of the other Democratic candidates can. And two, that I am ready for the job, and I don't think any of the others are. He doesn't think others are ready for the job. Well, the problem is that no one seems to think that Bloomberg is ready for the job either. In fact, Bloomberg can't even uh, be honest about Xi Jinping, the, uh, the dictator in China. So, and President Xi is not a dictator, you said, but you just listed a bunch of human rights violations I, that are so egregious. The, so the, how the can you say that he's not a dictator? The definition of a dictator was what we were talking about that day. He is a very powerful person there. They do not have a democratic system. They don't have democratic elections. That's what they don't have. And the human rights uh, record is terrible. Um, yeah, but she, he wants to quibble 
over the definitions of whether or not he's a dictator. He is. Just as a shortcut. I guess Bloomberg has business dealings in China. Uh, For a man who thinks he can talk truth to power, he certainly can't do that. Well, he's on the ballot and he's not going to win anything today. Let's review. Here's Super Tuesday. The Democrats abroad are going to award 17 delegates. Their their primary starts today. It runs through next week. What are the Democrats abroad? It is the the primary uh, custom tailored for Russian incursion. It is an international coalition of Democrats uh, that allows you to vote by fax, email, or by, by regular mail, and uh, I don't know that the system is as secure as they claim, but they're going to give away 17 delegates. I'm sure the Russians are going to have a field day over the next week with this primary. There are also 14 states. You've got a caucus in American Samoa no one cares about where there will be 11 delegates at stake. It's remarkable. American Samoa will give fewer delegates than the Democrat abroad coalition. But as for the states, I'm going to give you the numbers and then the superdelegates. The superdelegates are part of the overall number. So, for example, there are 36 delegates at stake in Arkansas. Five of those will be, five of those 36 will be superdelegates. Superdelegates will not vote in the first round of voting at the Democratic Convention. You got Alabama, 61 delegates, nine super. Joe Biden expected to win. Arkansas, 36 delegates, five super with Biden expected to win. California, 494 delegates, 79 super. Sanders expected to win. Colorado, 80 delegates, 13 super. Sanders expected to win. Maine, 32 delegates, eight super with Sanders expected to win. Massachusetts, 114 delegates, 23 with uh, super with Sanders expected to win. Minnesota, 92 delegates, 17 super with Sanders expected to win. North Carolina, 122 delegates, 12 super with Sanders Sanders expected to win. Oklahoma, 42 delegates, five super with Biden expected to win. Tennessee, 73 delegates, nine super with Biden expected to win. Texas, 262 delegates, 34 super with Sanders expected to win. Utah is 35 delegates, six super with Sanders expected to win. Vermont is 16 delegates, seven super with Sanders expected to win. And Virginia is 124 delegates, 25 of them super with Sanders expected to win. Based on the available polling right now, though something could change because Buttigieg, Klobuchar dropped out, Steyer's dropped out. Um, Beto O'Rourke has also come in and endorsed Biden, saying they got to stop Sanders. Sanders is expected, though, right now, as the sun rises across the country, to win 10 of the 14 states on Super Tuesday today. Uh, He'll win a portion of delegates in all of the other states except possibly Oklahoma, where it looks like Mike Bloomberg may come in second place and actually pick up some delegates. But overall, it's going to be a good day for, uh, for Bernie Sanders. Now, let's keep in mind a couple of things here. Over two million ballots have already been cast in California. A million ballots have been cast in Texas. Those had uh, Steyer and Klobuchar and Buttigieg on the ballot, and they're, they've dropped out. They've suspended. Now, by the way, as an aside, why do candidates, somebody asked me this yesterday, why do candidates suspend their candidacy instead of formally dropping out? The reason is because if you suspend your candidacy instead of quitting the race, you can hold on to your delegates. If you formally quit, your delegates are free for all. So, for example, Pete Buttigieg has 28 delegates. If Buttigieg quit the race instead of suspending, then those delegates could be lobbied and would be free and they could go wherever they wanted. As long as Buttigieg suspends and doesn't quit, those delegates on the first vote of the Democratic Convention are bound to Buttigieg and can vote for no one else. 
That's why he's suspending. He doesn't want any of those people to go for Bernie Sanders. There's polling out there that suggests a lot of those people would go for Bernie Sanders. He doesn't want to help Sanders, so he's not going to suspend. But two million votes have been cast in California already, a million in Texas. That's why early voting is such a bad idea. And then the odd thing is that California has a mail-in system, and the votes only have to be postmarked today. They don't have to be arrived today. So California will still be counting votes next week, which is going to hurt Bernie Sta- Bernie Sanders' ability to claim a huge victory tonight because they won't be able to formally declare California the winner. And you watch, I guarantee you, the media is going to go overboard making it a big deal, particularly if the votes consolidate in Texas and Joe Biden has a good night in Texas. Joe Biden is going to get impressive headlines in Texas that uh, Bernie Sanders is not going to be able to get. Now, The polling shows that Sanders is actually going to be ahead in Texas, but by how much, we don't actually know now that Buttigieg and Klobuchar are gone and Steyer is gone, and you've got all these people coming out consolidating behind Joe Biden. But there's a question. There's a question people are asking. People want to know, where, oh, where is Barack Obama? There is some significant breaking news happening right now at 24 after the hour. The Federal Reserve has cut interest rates a half point uh, to kind of uh, stem the market worries over the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, That is the Federal Reserve cutting uh, interest rates a half point. The Dow Jones yesterday, largest point gain in history, not largest percentage gain, just point gain. Right now, looking at the markets again, 1025 a.m. this morning uh, on Super Tuesday, the Dow is up 95 points. The NASDAQ is up 45 points here in early market trading. Apple up two uh, along the way. So it looks like the Federal Reserve doing what they can to calm the market through a cut of half-point interest rates. Let's go to the phones, 877-97-ERIC, E-R-I-C-K, 877-973-7425. TJ and Macon, you're up first. Welcome. Yes, appreciate you taking my call. And, you know, we, we get a lot of stats, and Eric's real good on stats and this and that and the other, but it sounds like all the reports we're getting is everything is a blue uh, is a blue state. But the thing about it is we need some of those stats about what percentage of the voters in each particular state are voting Democrat and, which, and how many are voting Republican versus how many registered voters there are. Yeah, you know, and that's I said, well, Eric, Eric Erickson probably the best one to give those stats. <laughs> well, so here's the problem, TJ. We don't actually know that, and we won't know until tomorrow, but I intend to cover that tomorrow. And right. part of the reason that we don't know it is because some of these states aren't actually going to have now Republican primaries because Bill Weldon and Joe Walsh didn't qualify. Um, so it's all about picking the <laughs> Democratic who, nominee. Who is, who is, who is Joe Walsh now? Okay. Uh, yeah, well, no, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, he, he was a f- failed radio show host who now hates talk radio, who wasn't very good at it. Uh, but yeah, uh, and you know, so here's the other thing, though, TJ. This is what I'm actually watching for today. Uh, what is the Democratic turnout going to be in some of these states? So take, for example, Texas. Uh, Texas is a state, uh-huh. in, and Georgia, the Democrats say that they can flip the state. I don't believe them, but can they actually increase their turnout completely? compared to 2016. That's actually going to be a, a relevant question. Is there a greater Democratic primary turnout today in Texas than there was four years ago? If there is significant increase in turnout, then that's a good sign Texas Democrats are organized. I still don't think they'll flip the state, but it's going to be interesting. 
We don't actually know overall uh, what the numbers are going to be today, though, in, in terms of mobilization. We will see uh, where, where what shakes out throughout the day. But we do have these 14 states where the Democrats will try to decide. Again, Alabama, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Vermont, and Virginia. Tennessee is going to be, or not Tennessee, I'm sorry, North Carolina is going to be a swing state. Minnesota could potentially be a swing state. And Colorado could arguably be a swing state, although I doubt it. But a lot of these are going to be safe Republican states. I mean, Alabama is going to be a safe Republican state. Now, Alabama is not just having its presidential primary today. It's having its entire primary today. So you're going to get a a lot of races in Alabama today. We will see if Jeff Sessions is headed back to the Senate or if Tommy Tuberville is headed to the Senate because Doug Jones is toast. Arkansas is going to be reliably Republican. Maine is probably going to go Democrat. Massachusetts will go Democrat. Oklahoma will go Republican. Tennessee will go Republican. Texas will go Republican. Utah will go Republican. Vermont and Virginia will go Democrat. Um, So we're not going to get indicative trends of November, except for the fact that we may see a surge of Democratic Party registration. Now, uh, Virginia is not having a Republican primary, and they're not having it because uh, no one qualified against the president. So there was no reason to have it. Uh, all the other states will have primaries for both the Republicans and the Democrats. Some of them will have state primaries. California, for example, is having all of its federal primaries today, not just presidential. There are several big contested races, including whether or not Daryl Issa goes back to the Senate. He's he's running against Carl DeMaio. I'm supporting Issa in that race. He's got a lot of pro-life leaders who have come out for him. But DeMaio, former libertarian, he's got a lot of support out there as well. Both of them running to out-Trump each other. I don't know whether that'll work or not. Texas is also having all of their primaries today, not just presidential primaries. Now, when we come back, we got to shift to some Georgia news. There's legislation in the state Senate, uh, Senate Bill 357. It would allow churches to designate who in their church is allowed to carry a gun in the church on Sunday. And uh, a lot of a lot of church leaders in the state like the legislation. Georgia Kerry does not. And it sounded great to me. And I had to pause when Georgia Kerry said they didn't care for it. And I wanted to get them on and get their side of it so you can get both sides of this. I'll get Senator Bill Heath, the legislation's author, as well on here so we can get both sides of this. But coming up, uh, Jerry Henry from Georgia Kerry is going to join me to talk about gun legislation in the state legislature. Welcome back. 35 after the hour. Eric Erickson here again. If you want to hear Governor Kemp's uh, interview, text the word show to 33777 and you can subscribe to our podcast. We'll push it out here in a little while. You'll also be able to get uh, Senator Perdue's interview and the conversation I'm about to have. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Senator Bill Heath has introduced legislation in the Senate, uh, Senate Bill 357. I don't know if they intentionally gave it the number 357. It is a gun bill uh, and it would allow churches to designate individuals inside the church uh, who could carry uh, guns. Uh, Right now, it's kind of an all-or-nothing situation, I believe, under Georgia law, and it sounded good to me. And then someone forwarded me an alert from Georgia Carey that they have concerns about the legislation and don't like it, and I'm a huge Georgia Carey fan. They are the only uh, gun group in the state of Georgia that I pay attention to. There are several groups in Georgia, but Georgia Carey, it's the good one, and I love them. And when they raise a red flag about a piece of legislation, I got to pay attention. And so I wanted to get uh, Jerry from Georgia Carey here to talk to me about it. Jerry, welcome. Well, thank you. And I appreciate those kind comments you gave us on the introduction. Absolutely. So what are your concerns with with Senate Bill 357? Well, our concerns uh, we'll discuss a little bit later that that 
they may be going away. But our concern with the, with SB 357 is that churches have, since time immemorial with the uh, United States, have been private property. And that's the way they should be treated. And for the last 150 years, they have been under the control of the government telling them what they can and can't do on their property. And so our goal was to get the church to be treated as private property, since that's what it is. Now, this bill that Bill Heath put out would allow them some of the, the privileges of private property. In other words, if, if I want to carry on your property, I have to have your permission. I mean, if I go on your property, I don't have to ask you to come on. But if you say, take that gun off my property, then I have to leave or I can be uh, criminally trespassed. The church, that's not the case now, or it's not the case with this bill. The same thing that would happen, it would give them the opportunity, the church is the, the opportunity to say who they wanted to carry and who they don't want to carry, which we're fine with. But there's a penalty that goes along with that if you're caught carrying in a church that is not that does not go along with other private property. And that is that you can be fined up to $100 per incident. And there is a question as to whether or not at some point you would lose your license due to the fact that you would be carrying in an unauthorized location. Uh, and so our goal basically, again, is we want it to be private property. Just get the church out of, the, of it. Uh, and, in fact, if you look at our at the state of Georgia's Constitution, Section, 8, paragraph, uh, section 2, Paragraph uh, 7 says, separation of church and state, that the government is not to spend any public money to aid churches, and we believe that that's what they're doing by enforcing these laws. You know, see, this is why I like you guys, because I, I would have never, I mean, just looking at the surface of the legislation, I wouldn't have thought about the private property angle, but hearing you talk about it, yeah, that actually, a church is a private property, so why is the state carving out loopholes and, and not actually letting the church itself decide? That's correct, and like I said, they've been doing that for 150 years. Uh, they did that for the first, well, since 1870, uh, they did it under the public gathering laws, if you remember the old public gathering laws that we got rid of in 2010. Mm -hmm. And But what they did in 2010, or actually it was in 2014 that they changed churches because they left churches uh, as off limits in uh, 2010 when we got rid of the public gathering, but they did not uh, allow them to allow anybody to carry until uh, – 2014 when we got, or 2016 rather, when we got, no, 2014, when we got HB 60 passed. Then it gave them the opportunity that if you want everybody to carry, you can, but you couldn't pick and choose. And again, that was not, that was a bill that we supported, but that was something that was put in by the Senate at the last minute. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we went along with it because the rest of the bill was so good. And actually it was better than what we had because then some churches could allow you to carry. Right, and our our position's always been that you know the mega churches, uh, they're the ones with the biggest voice, but they're also the ones with the biggest pocketbooks. And mm -hmm. the ones that the churches I worry about are like the one across the street from me, over here from me that has about thirty five members or so that's been here forever, to, you know, in the in the country. And those people, there's no way they can afford to have their own security unless they do it through their members. Well, and I, so I guess I, I think that, and I'm going to talk to Bill Heath later today. He couldn't come on this morning because I wanted to talk to him about it after you and I had talked. But, and I, I, I think his, his, 
his explanation of this and, and some of the groups who support the legislation is that right now it is all or nothing and they don't want churches to get in trouble by saying, okay, you this group of people can, members can, but visitors coming the first time can't. And under the legislation as it stands, they can't work that, and they're trying to figure out a way to give churches at least more flexibility uh, in how they do it. But, yeah, it is actually an odd conundrum now that you mention it that they are private property, so why can't they just decide themselves? Yeah, and that's what I said to to Bill since we started. When When the bill came out and I read it, I called Bill. And I talked to him for about 35, 40 minutes, and, and we basically agreed on everything, except he was not going to take the penalty off of it and, and declare it private property. Now, the good news is it may become a moot point because last night uh, our bill, Senate Bill 224, was passed out of the Judiciary Committee. And that bill strikes churches from the off-limits locations and does away with the penalty. So it does make it private property. If we can get that bill passed... Uh, out of the Senate and over to the House, then we'll take care of the situation. And Bill, he said last night that he preferred our bill, but he was trying to get something through, and he didn't think that that going with a bill just to make it private property would get through. But he said if 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 ours gets through, he is, and he's a signer on both bills. I mean, he he's uh, the sponsor of one, and he signed. Uh, Tyler Harper's the one that's carrying our. Uh, SB 224 uh, from last year, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, he is a co-signer, and he said that if uh, they asked him what how it would harmonize with his bill, and he said, if this bill gets passed, I will support this bill, and we'll do away with the other bill, basically. Well, that's good to hear. So, now, let, let me ask you a larger issue. What, what other things are you paying attention to in the legislature this year? Well, one of the things that we started off paying attention for, and we haven't heard a whole lot of it yet and may not, uh, hopefully we won't, we, we're concerned about red flag laws, as we've always mm-hmm. been, because that, you know, if you do, if you give, if you do away with enough of, of our, um, uh, of our rights to, uh, then our due process rights, then you don't need a Second Amendment. Mm-hmm. It, it's so good because I can say, well, Eric Garrison has a gun, and I'm afraid of him. He's he's about half crazy. You need to go get his gun. And they go get <laughs> that's it what my wife says. <laughs> well, my wife says, well, you know, that was that's one of the reasons that I fight these bills that say that because that's the day there's nobody on the other side of that line over there that thinks that I'm not crazy. So uh, I, right. I fight it from that point. Uh, also, the uh, the misdemeanor uh, domestic violence bills, they a lot of them try to approach the same thing, and they're, they're doing it by, uh, or they have done it in the past, by increasing the number of people that come under that legislation. Mm-hmm. You know, so that, um, you know, when you start off at what, how they define the family, they get down to where it's, uh, if you were ever in a Boy Scout camp with, somebody and, and a friend of yours was on a top bunk and then 40 years later y'all get in a fight that's domestic violence and so we we uh, fight those bills and then we're uh, you know anything that that's going to uh infringe our second amendment rights we're we're on top of that and and that's what we do now sb224 though is a good bill that you need to get behind okay uh it does it does several things <clears throat> number one in the in the state of Georgia right now, a few years ago, they changed the definition of aggravated assault. And if you show somebody that you have a firearm when you think that they're, they may be coming over to, to do something bad to you, if they're smart enough, they go call the police. The police come back, and guess who gets arrested? Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, for and not only do you get arrested, you get arrested for uh, aggravated assault, mm-hmm. which is a felony. And so basically the law says right now that if you're going to pull your gun, the best thing you do is go ahead and shoot the guy and kill him because the penalty is going to be about the same. Right. And if you if you get off with self-defense, then you're okay. Uh, otherwise, you're going to lose your right. And we know of four cases in the in the state right now, at least, uh, where this has happened, where people are either in jail awaiting trial or they have been sentenced to trial and they've lost their rights to carry hmm. just by doing that. One guy just laid a, a gun up on his dash because the guy was headed towards his car. Good grief. And the guy saw the gun on the dash, turned around and left, went and called the cops and came back, and that guy went to the pen over that. Wow. So we changed that definition uh in SB 224, and it, we also, uh, right now, if, if if the word courthouse is attached to a building, it's off limits. And what we're trying to do with that, we've changed the definition to mean a building when occupied by judicial courts in containing rooms which judicial proceedings are being held mm-hmm. uh, or in which officers of the court are conducting official business, then it's off limits. Any other time, it's not off limits. And the, the reason for that, as you probably know, uh, if you go an awful lot of the counties, matter of fact, most counties, uh, they have a courthouse. That's where you go to get your license. That's where you go to, to uh, pay your taxes. That's where you go to, to uh, sign up for uh, voter registration, anything that you might be doing that has anything to do with the government. You've got to go into that building. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be, for instance, here, I live in South Fulton and, and the South Fulton Annex. If you walk in the front door of it, the courtroom is right there to the left, and they have security for that. Right. So they're keeping guns out of the courtroom, but you go downstairs, that's where the tag office is, and you can't carry in that even though it's around back and away from it. Huh. So we want to we try to get it to where you don't we, don't, we don't want anybody to be disarmed anywhere they don't necessarily right. have to be. And then, of course, you get churches off limits. Right now, there's a, uh, a provision that if you've been arrested for a misdemeanor uh, marijuana conviction, you can't get a license for five years after that. We're, we're trying to get that stricken, basically just because marijuana has turned into to a non-offense almost anymore. You get a, right. get a ticket, pay $75, and you're out. So why is that, should that not, you know, why should that uh, prohibit you from getting a license to carry when Anybody that's been convicted of that can be a cop, they can be uh, judges, they can be anything you want mm-hmm. to be, uh, but you can't get a license. Right. And uh, right, right now in the state of Georgia, uh, as in the, in the United States, under United States law, you can, a felon can own a, an antique firearm because the ATF has classified them as non-firearms. Right. But in the state of Georgia, that's against the law, and we're, we've changed that. Mm-hmm. to uh, exclude antique firearms. Uh, and uh, one of the things you're talking about, the little things that, that we see, uh, you know, we pass a law that says you can carry a firearm in the, ster- in the non-sterile areas of the airport mm-hmm. uh, if you have a license. Well, guess what? You can't carry a knife. If you have a pocket <laughs> knife in there, yeah. if you have a pocket knife in your pro- pocket and you go pick somebody up and you get caught, then you're, you've broken the law. you violated right. the law. So, so we're, ridiculous. We're, 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 we're taking, taking care of that. <laughs> well, look, uh, I, for, I, 
I, I, I gotta, I gotta let us go there because we're running out of time. But man, Jerry, I can't thank you enough for stopping by because I, I really do think the world of of Georgia Carey. And I knew that, that when I saw that, that you and I were looking at this differently, I needed to get you on here and let you talk about it. And, and I just, it's just a revelation hearing you talk about it as private property. I wouldn't have thought about that angle. Well, like I said, we appreciate it. I'm happy to be here, and, and anytime I can help you, uh, you've helped us in the past many times. I know I've sent you emails, and you've uh, taken care of the things and getting them out to people, and we really appreciate that as well. And if I can help you, let me know. If you got any questions, give me a call. I don't have a problem with that. I Anybody? sure will. Thank you so much. That is Jerry Henry from Georgia Carry. Uh, you can go to georgiacarry.org. If you want, uh, again, there are, there are, I mean, so many gun groups out there and in Georgia, there are several and georgiacarry.org. Uh, they are the most informed and the most engaged. And, uh, I, 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 I don't want to say reasonable, but, but in terms of approachable, I guess I should say, uh, you know, a lot of times a, a lot of liberal groups will come out and say, well, we're a reasonable gun group. You don't want a reasonable gun group cause they'll sell your rights out. Uh, but you want an approachable group, uh, one that you can actually understand where they're coming from and they're not just yelling at you. They actually have real cases to make. And George Carey does. And I can't thank Jerry enough for stopping by and filling us in. Uh, his legislation, the one he's talking about, Senate Bill 224. I'll get an action alert for you guys on that one so you can reach out to the state legislature. So text the word ARMY to 33777. Text ARMY to 33777. Uh, the number that you text to is 33777. And then just send the word ARMY. And you'll get a text back asking for your email address. I will get you guys signed up for that. I'll do an action alert to help Georgia Carey on uh, Senate Bill 224 would treat churches like private property and allow churches to make up their own mind on who they want carrying guns on their premises, uh, just like any other private property owner could do. That is, that's a thoughtful piece of legislation. So uh, let's see if we can advance on that front and help Georgia Carey out as well. It is Eric Erickson here. I have not done this today, and I probably should. There is rain through a lot of the listing area. Um, North of Rome, there's another band of storms coming through, and it looks like those storms, if I put the radar in motion, Rome is going to skirt through them. Uh, If you're in Athens, you've got more rain coming in here very shortly. If you're up in the North George Mountains uh, and in the Habersham County area and north, you've got more rain coming through. Hiawassee, Blairsville, Blue Ridge, you've got rain. Uh, Jasper, it looks like you're going to be mostly in the clear there. And Dalton, the rain is blowing away. Now, if you're south of Atlanta, it is, I'm looking out the window of my studio, it's raining outside right now in my house, uh, in my studio, and there's more heavy rain moving through. It's going to be moving over to Vidalia uh, and the like. If you're in far south Georgia, though, you're largely in the clear down there. Good for you people. Rah, rah for you that south Georgia, you are without today uh, a lot of the rain that the rest of us from middle and north Georgia are getting really the line through Columbus uh, all the way. The, the storm is moving almost due west. So Statesboro and Vidalia, you're going to get it here in a little while. Savannah, you'll get some. Augusta, uh, it is going to impact you here very shortly. And you've got it in Athens. Now, uh, again, please text the word uh, ARMY to 33777. I will get you guys educated on the uh, SB 224 that George Kerry is supporting. But there's another piece of legislation here in Georgia that I deeply care about. I really care about it. I woke up this morning and the sun, I was up before 6.30. Normally I get my alarm set for 6.30, but I was up about 6.15. 
because our 11 year old came in and had a nosebleed. Um, he and his sister both have sinus infections. And so his nose was bleeding, came in. I was already awake in the bed when he came in. thought, well, I'm just going to get up a little early. Uh, so I got up and I came downstairs and I looked outside and it was light. The sun was rising. Well, on Sunday, we are moving to daylight saving time. Not daylight savings. A lot of people say daylight savings time. It flows a little smoother off the tongue when you say it, but it's actually daylight saving. You're, you're daylight saving. You're saving daylight. You are, you're advancing the clock. It is spring forward. We are going to lose an hour as we go to daylight saving time. And I actually, once I get used to it, prefer daylight saving time. And the reason I prefer daylight saving time is because I don't mind waking up when it's dark. But I really hate uh, the abridged hours in the evening because I do an evening radio show and I'm done at six. And in the wintertime in particular, it sucks because it, it takes longer or it, it's pitch black outside by the time I get off radio. and I can't go out in the yard, even though it's still rather pleasant outside. I am noticing right now that the sun is uh, is staying up a little later, which is good. But with daylight saving time, we'll get to the 4th of July and you'll be wanting to shoot your fireworks and it won't be dark enough until after 10 o'clock. So Wes Cantrell has proposed a non-binding referendum, and it sailed out of the out of the state Senate yesterday unanimously for a vote on would you prefer to stay on uh, standard time or would you prefer to go to daylight saving time year round? Now, here's the catch. If you as if Georgia as a state decides it wants no more spring forward fall back and just wants to fall back in the fall and never spring forward again and stay on standard time, uh, nothing has to happen. Not a thing has to happen. The state legislature, by an act of the state legislature, we can avoid ever having spring forward again. But if you would prefer, as some states do, Marco Rubio is a big advocate of this in Florida, if you would prefer to spring forward into daylight saving time and never fall back, it will take an actual act of Congress. Congress literally will have to act on your behalf. I see no reason for us to ever have to do daylight saving time again. Just go to fall back and stay falling back. Uh, never spring forward again. As much as I like having daylight in the evening and would prefer daylight saving time, uh, standard time is standard time. I don't think Congress needs to monkey around with it. And the, But this legislation will create a non-binding referendum. Essentially what will happen if it passes out of the legislature, when you get to the ballot in November for the general election, every Georgian will be asked, would you prefer that we continue to spring forward and fall back? Or would you prefer to spring forward into daylight saving time and never fall back? Or would you prefer to fall back into standard time and never spring forward again? Your choice. It's non-binding. No one has to do anything about it. But it will instruct the legislature as to whether or not you guys are okay with springing forward and falling back. And I get the, 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 the historic logic had a lot to do with farmers. But really what it ultimately had to do with was school kids who were getting up in the morning and it's dark as they're waiting for the school bus. And people don't like to get up in the morning when it's dark and waiting for the school bus. So they wanted to shift the hours around to make it better. But guess what? You spring forward right now uh, and you're going to have some dark kid. You're going to have some kids out in the dark waiting for the bus. 
I just I would prefer us to stop monkeying with the time. I, I think in the 21st century, uh, with iPhones and a lot digital alarm clocks and the like, we can stop with the spring forward fallback nonsense. So I hope this legislation also passes the House. Unfortunately, the Speaker of the House is a petty, vindictive little man and, and may not do it because Wes Cantrell is the sponsor. But I hope he will reconsider and actually put it up for a vote and let us do this. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-973-7425, 877-973-7425. You can always get me on social media. Instagram's the best, E.W. Erickson, because I don't do a lot of politics there. It's just, it's it's real world and life. Life is messy and it's all on display for you there. You can do Twitter as well, Facebook, E.W. Erickson, all of them, E-W-E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. I was actually, where was I the other day? I was at Cathedral Coffee. Uh, there, there's a great little coffee shop near me. Uh, it's actually on the side of a church, uh, Northway Church here in Macon, Cathedral Coffee. Man, they got some good coffee, and I can go in there and get a cafe au lait. I'm from Louisiana, and I like my cafe au lait. Um, growing up in Louisiana, that that's just, that's it, and I went in and, and the guy said, um, what's your name? And I said, Eric. And he said, with a C or a K? And I said, both. And it just, you could see it blow his mind. <laughs> in any event, welcome. Um, I, I uh, got to talk about Kanye West. I actually do want to talk about Kanye West because I find the story hilarious. But before I do that, let me circle back to the coronavirus situation. Governor Kemp joined me earlier today on the program to talk about it. Uh, trying to figure out where to balance it. I do want to keep everyone up to speed because I know now that it has hit Georgia, a lot of people are saying, oh, well, it's not going to come here. It's not going to come here. It's going to be confined to the coasts and major metropolitan hubs. Nope, uh, it is here. Uh, Vice President Pence is going to join me on Friday to talk about it as well. Um, but the governor was here this morning along with David Perdue, who has now uh, qualified to run for reelection. I uh, had to keep be abrupt somewhat with uh, Senator Purdue to be able to get the governor on for this update. There are two people in Georgia with coronavirus, uh, COVID-19. They are mar- a married couple, as far as we can tell. We don't have a lot of information about them because of uh, patient privacy laws. Uh, but it appears, if we piece all the pieces together, the husband was in Milan, Italy, and came home on a Delta flight and had no symptoms at all and was home for a couple of days without symptoms and was smart enough to think I've been in Milan this y'all I can't I don't know who this person is I have no idea who the person is uh and I wish I did I, I I'd buy the man a beer um what a what a thoughtful person you know I'm more and more okay I'm gonna go off I'm gonna go off on a tangent and I don't mean to offend you but it really pisses me off the people who decide not to vaccinate their kids for measles and 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 stuff like that, and they decide they're going to do it the essential oil cult instead. And I don't mean to be belittling or insulting, but it pisses me off to know. And my wife has lung cancer, and you trot in your unvaccinated sick kids spreading germs around to my wife's compromised immune system, and it makes me livid uh, because you don't believe in the miracle of modern medicine that God gave us. You've decided that you're going to go off with some essential oil because you've concocted some conspiracy in your mind that the pharmaceutical companies are actually making us sick and providing no cures and it infuriates me it absolutely infuriates me you're not going to get your kids vaccinated and so you're going to let your kids get sick and and then harm all of the senior citizens and people with cancer on chemo who have compromised immune systems because you're the idiot 
It infuriates me. And this guy comes home from Milan, Italy, and has the foresight to think, huh, I've been in a city where there is a mass outbreak of a virus for which we have no cure. I perhaps should limit my contact with the outside world. And several days later, develops symptoms and says, huh, I bet I have the coronavirus. Let me not go out into the world and go shopping at the local grocery store. Instead, I'm going to call my doctor. I'm going to tell my doctor I've been in Italy. I think I have coronavirus. Please don't make me come through the front door where other people could be harmed. Please work with me to get me tested. And so the doctor's office says, okay, we're prepared for this. We've consulted with Dr. Toomey in the Department of Public Health here in Georgia. We know what to do. Come through the back door. Someone will already be dressed in uh, safety clothes so you can't give it to them. You're going to put on a mask so you can't sneeze and spread it in the office. And we're going to test you. And they did. And it was positive. And they sent him home. His wife now has it. And they're home quarantined themselves and the family that's come into contact with them in this house. Poor people. But thank you. Thank you very much for being the responsible person, whoever you are in Georgia. I don't know whether you can listen to me or not. But thank you. Thank you for being responsible. Thank you for taking precautions. Thank you for not roaming around the city thinking, huh, I've just come back from Milan. Let me see how many other people I can give this to. The reason the coronavirus is spreading so quickly in communities is because people are not thoughtful like this person. I just, I, I'm, I'm, I got to move on because it, it just, it makes me angry. It makes me so angry to think about the people who just refuse to trust modern medicine. Uh, you know, the number of people, so my wife has a, a rare form of cancer. Uh, it is a genetic form of lung cancer. There's not really a cure for it per se, but she takes a pill that keeps all the tumors in her lung from going. I can't tell you the number of people who have emailed me to tell me that if she would just take a particular essential oil, it would uh, take care of everything. I can't tell you the number of people who have told me uh, that if she would just eat certain things and, and take certain essential oils, that it would cure the cancer that has no cure. And when you bring this up to those people, much like conspiracy theorists, you can't convince the conspiracy theorists the conspiracy is wrong because they're so brought into it. Well, you haven't tried it, have you? How do you know it's not going to work? I'm sorry. I have the best doctors on planet Earth who are experts in this. <sighs> um, it just, I, I'm sorry. It infuriates me and I got to move on because I'm going to say something I regret, but I want to talk about patient 31 again. Patient 31 in South Korea is a woman who is very much like that. Her doctor told her patient 31, there were 31 cases of coronavirus in South Korea. And the 31st patient is a woman, a middle-aged woman. There's a joke there. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. She's a middle-aged woman. <laughs> You know it, you know it, you you know, middle-aged woman who goes to the doctor and the doctor says you need to get tested. And of course, why should I believe the doctor that I need to be tested for coronavirus when I can instead do what? Go to one of the largest churches in South Korea, in Daegu, South Korea, and then do what? Despite developing a fever, go to an all-you-can-eat buffet. There are jokes that write themselves. Well, she went to church. 
She went to the all-you-can-eat buffet, and then what did she do after she went to the all-you-can-eat buffet? She went back to church. That's right, went to two church services of a very large church and to an all-you-can-eat buffet. They've been able to trace 1,200 infected patients to this one idiot woman who, when told by the doctor to go get tested for coronavirus, decided to go let Jesus and the all-you-can-eat buffet sort it out for her. Oh, for the love of God, some people just need to, wow. Okay, now let's move on. I'm going to be in Athens tomorrow night. If you're listening on our flagship station, WGAU in Athens, Georgia, I will be at the University of Georgia at the the Miller Center uh, talking to the college Republicans tomorrow night at 630. It's for the college Republicans, uh, but I will be around. I got Listen, if you're in Athens, you at least have to go get a beer after when you're in Athens. Isn't that a rule? If you go to Athens and you're a legal drinking age, don't you at least have to grab a drink while you're in Athens? I, I think you do. Uh, that is my plan. And I, I will have to get home because I do have to be on this. I got to drive home, number one. And number two, I got to be on radio on, on Thursday. But I will be in Athens tomorrow night. Uh, and then, let's see, I'm going to be at a Rotary Club in Rome in, a, in another month or two. And then I'm going to be at a Chamber of Commerce uh, lunch in Clarksville soon. I'm making the rounds of the state of Georgia as we grow this show. Someone else who is making the rounds is Kanye West. That's right, Kanye West. He is on his... his um, Sunday tour, whatever they're calling it for Kanye West. Hang on a second. I got to do this because, you know, Kanye West, if you haven't heard about this, uh, Kanye West actually wrote an ode to Chick-fil-A. I kid you not. Kanye West has done an ode to Chick-fil-A. It is called Closed on Sunday, and it is a song in praise of Chick-fil-A. Oh, I wish I was making it up. There actually are lyrics, trust me. Close on Sunday. You my Chick-fil-A. Close on Sunday. I'm sorry. You my Chick-fil-A. Oh, and he goes on to praise the lemonade and everything else. I, 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 so, so he's he's causing all sorts of people to be angry with him. He's doing his tour around the around the world now, and he calls it Sunday service. It is gospel themed, and he decided to go to the the Bouffe Nord Theater in Paris. Bouffe du Nord Theater. Well, there's a problem. Faya Menard Maisonmere had just one day's notice that Kanye West was coming. Now, for those of you who don't speak French, Maisonmere, Maison is house. Mare is poop, except it's the it's the it's the naughty word that begins with S to describe it. 
Yet when I was a kid and growing up in Dubai, I had to take French. Took a number of years, five years of French. And of course, your very first year in French, when your teacher wants you to think they're cool, they teach you all the cuss words. We had a French-Canadian woman who was our teacher. And yeah, we learned all the cuss words. Let's. I can cuss in French in here. I can cuss in multiple languages, as a matter of fact. I, I try not to. My preacher's listening right now. He's appalled at me. But nonetheless, still, I can tell you what maison mère means. Well, uh, Fia Menard is transgender, is a transgender artist. And Kanye West, according to Agence France Press, West decided to appear at Bouffe du Nord, the theater in Paris, where Fia Menard's maison mère was on stage and they bumped Menard's House of Poop show technically for technical reasons, and put Kanye West on stage for his Sunday gospel presentation, the Sunday service. I am an artiste. I'm sorry. This is, this is, this is, this is, I should do this in the proper voice. I am an artist, a trans woman, the director of a company, and I refuse to accept this denial and contempt. The performer wrote in a Facebook post. In a statement, the Bouffe du Nord Theater revealed that the show was canceled due to technical incompatibility of the two events. Only 98 people had bought tickets and they were contacted and most came to her show the night before while the rest were reimbursed. The seating capacity for the famous theater, which opened its doors in 1876, is 530 people and only 98 people wanted to come see the transgender dude who now thinks he's a woman uh, perform his House of Poop show on stage. And, And then Kanye came and Kim Kardashian came with basically painted on clothes. Good Lord people if that was my daughter um and kanye west was able to fill up the crowd uh so according to fox news uh, he kicked off his latest sunday service with jesus is king and concluded with balm and gilead the services sermon challenged those who gathered in the fashion industry according to vogue the preacher who was on stage with him said a lot of time we put our faith and trust in People, we put our faith and trust in material things. A lot of times those things fail us and then made a case for Jesus. And the, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm looking up. Fea Menard is 49, is a French juggler, performance artist, and director. That's right. Uh, came out as a transgender woman in 2008. Uh, he followed, well, I, I'm sorry, Wikipedia says I'm supposed to refer to him as a her. In 1998, he founded his own company, Non Nova, with the ambition, according to him, to abandon the question of virtuosity to work the defect far from the circus and the juggling, getting closer to the only the French would do something like this. And now they're upset uh, that Kanye West got on stage and sold out the house when this dude, I'm sorry, this whatever, could not do it and is upset. My goodness. Hey, you know, it's fantastic. Kanye West going around the world with this. I've been skeptical. I have been skeptical of this. I really have. But you've got Kanye West of all people, Kanye West and Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber coming out 
Uh, as Christians, Bieber saying he's had to recalibrate his life because he realizes he's got to repent and follow Jesus, and that means giving up his sins. You got Kanye West. Will it last? I don't know. Uh, but uh, I know that Kanye West has been deeply influenced by a, a deeply biblical uh, teacher, a Southern Baptist in California, who he and I have a number of shared friends, and they think very highly of him. And Kanye West has been flying this guy around to get him on stage and share the gospel with people. And I have a hard time, whether I'm a big fan of Kanye West or not, I got a real hard time uh, poking, poking my finger, pointing my finger at a celebrity and being critical of a guy who is uh, getting all sorts of scorn and derision from people because he's given up a lot of friends to get on stage and tell people Jesus is real and we should follow him. And now it's actually really funny to see he bumped the transgender performance of the House of Poop in Paris to get on stage and share the gospel. That's <laughs> God himself has a sense of humor. The phone number, you want to be a part of the program, 877-973-7425. That's 877-97-ERIC. <clears throat> Excuse me. I, I, I got to read you this story because I'm actually – so I want to lament here. Can, can I have a, a lamentation? A buddy of mine was talking about this the other day. I got a, got a, a good friend of mine uh, who many of you would know, and he was talking the other day. He – had some difficulty in his life and he's everybody wants to cheer him up and everybody wants to, to give him scripture. And he's like, can, can I not just have some lamentation? Even Jeremiah had some lamentation. Can I not just, just mourn for a minute? Uh, I want to mourn the death of my local newspaper. I actually like newspapers. I love the physical paper from a newspaper. The, the wall street journal, I subscribe to USA today, even the New York times, the Washington post. I like the physical paper. I, I maintain digital subscriptions to some, uh, because I got to do research for the show. And there's actually even, I, I'm an expert at weeding out, uh, the garbage news from a lot of the, the publications that lean to the left, but I still subscribe to a lot of them and I like physical newspapers. And I used to love to get my beloved Macon telegraph here where I am in Macon. Uh, Columbus has the ledger inquirer. Macon has the telegraph and they are McClatchy newspapers and both uh, have actually been really good newspapers. In fact, the Macon Telegraph was highly profitable, and uh, the poor idiots who run McClatchy started taking money out of the Macon newspaper and sending it to subsidize McClatchy as a whole and just ran the local newspaper into the ground. They they cut uh, they they cut the pages. They they've stopped Saturday service. They've cut a lot of the local sports. It's just sad, and and the the lamentations I hear from all sorts of people who used to love to get up on Saturday morning and read about the high school sports scores, and they don't anymore. Well, I got up this morning to see if there was anything updated on the coronavirus spread in Georgia. The governor had a press conference last night. There is not a single story on the local paper website about coronavirus now in Georgia. But you know what there is? There is this story at the Ledger Inquirer and the Macon Telegraph. Marijuana may have given a man a 12-hour case of priapism. If you know, you know. That's the big story today. <sighs> Y'all keep the people in Nashville in your prayers, if you will. Middle Tennessee's uh, tornadoes hit. Uh, one in the Germantown area of Nashville headed towards downtown. 19 people killed. Uh, overnight in those tornadoes. Schools closed in the Nashville area today with a lot of damage. Uh, it's just sad to 
sad to see. Um, I, I got to go back to the story. You know, <clears throat> one of the there is a lot to be said in the media narrative about the collapse of local media. That local local reporting is going away, and I actually don't think that's true. Uh, newspapers, because of the historic legacy of newspapers, newspapers are heralded as the be-all, end-all of news, and local newspapers are closing up shop, although I got to tell you. There's a newspaper uh, in, in Monroe County, Georgia, the Monroe County Reporter, and it, it's I know the publisher, great guy, just aggressive, good, generates news, puts out a newspaper on a regular basis. Uh, it, it makes a living at it, and it is, it's a solid passion of his. In, in noon in Georgia, there's local newspaper, and they've scaled back their operation, but they're still getting subscribers. They're still getting advertisers. They're still making business. Uh, one of the, the reasons that some local newspapers are closing up shop is because they're owned by national companies, McClatchy, Gannett, and others, and they're not sustainable in a national corporate business model with old school pensions and the like. And local newspapers, like where I live, here in middle Georgia, the Macon Telegraph, a profitable, profitable um, newspaper for a while, and their profits were then funneled to prop up the rest of the company, which led to the deterioration and decline of the local newspaper. I actually had a buddy of mine uh, reach out to me the other day. He has a really big story of really uh, could be of really big news interest in middle Georgia. And he doesn't know a reporter to talk to who could actually get in there and investigate. And there used to be local reporters at the the local newspaper that I could tell him to turn to, and they could actually investigate a story. And and now they can't. Uh, they're not. I don't know who. I don't know of a reporter to refer him to uh, for 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 a big scoop story about uh, hospitals in in the Middle Georgia area. Um, but in any event, uh, you used to have you used to have these big newspapers. And the media laments the decline of the local newspaper and what it means for news in local areas. But I got to tell you, I really don't think that local news has declined so much as it has moved elsewhere. The radio station that you are listening to me on right now, wherever you are in the state of Georgia, the radio station you are listening to me on has someone who's doing local news. The local TV stations are doing local news. Uh, where I live uh, in middle Georgia, we've got a number of local news news stations. Uh, the WMAZ uh, Channel 13 here where I live in Macon is, is just a massive, it is a behemoth station. To some degree, it almost rests on its laurels of being almost the monopoly uh, TV station and, and could probably, there are things it could improve when it comes to news coverage. But there are some tenacious uh, Fox 24 and, and the NBC affiliates here in middle Georgia of getting very ag- locally aggressive with local sports coverage and local news to try to compete with the, the monopoly TV station. But all of those, they're doing news that the local newspaper used to do and no longer does. It's not that the news has gone away. It's that it's gone from print to, to broadcast, uh, the, the same, uh, up in, in Rome, for example, uh, WRGA up in Rome has, has great news. And, and I go to the WRGA website all the time and there is local news in, in Northwest Georgia. Or if I want local news up in the Habersham County area, I go to uh, WCHM, the radio station I'm on, uh, and they have news all the time in Athens. I can go to WGAU. I can find news from that area. They have reporters. They cover the news. It's not in the local newspaper, but it is actual news that's covered on 
TV and radio stations around Georgia, and we see this in other states as well, where it's local TV and radio stations have stepped up to capture the news content that newspapers are leaving behind. And it's just, it's sad though, because we do still live in a culture, we haven't transcended it yet, where people rely on newspapers and uh, you connect newspaper to news. We see this resurgence, frankly, in Atlanta. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has upped its local news coverage, uh, even as it's downplayed some national coverage, and it's actually turned around its subscriber base, focusing on local news, diving deep on local news. There are strategies there to save newspapers. There will always be people who want newspapers. And frankly, you're actually seeing an uptick in younger people uh, subscribing to newspapers because it's what their parents did. And, you know, th- this this goes to a larger story. So there's a trend in radio, and I don't mean to bore you. There's actually a point here, and we'll get to the priapism story, which is actually really funny. Uh, but it all relates together, even the priapism story. Trust me. Uh, th- there's actually there's a trend in a lot of radio these days where they want uh, standard talk radio to sound like FM morning shock jock radio. So you have five people who all sound alike. You don't know who's talking, and they take a super official look at the news where they're they're mocking people and they're laughing and it's what it's it's what they want because everybody in radio the demo is 25 to 54 and by god we got to get those 25 year olds because if we get the 25 year old in that guy he's going to be hooked with us for life and all of our old geezers they're dying off and they're not in the demo anymore and you know for and i don't mean that disparagingly it's just it, it's what you hear the the older talk radio listeners are starting to move outside the demo the the people advertisers no longer care about. The actual sweet spot for advertisers in radio is about 35 years old, 35 to 45. I'm actually in that demo still. And that is the people who, and this is the funny thing, and this is what a lot of these these radio uh, stations are missing when they want to do the big group chat, uh, shock jock radio, FM radio, morning zoo style stuff for covering the news, is they miss that the 25 to 35 year old doesn't have brand loyalty yet. And when they get brand loyalty is the moment they realize they're an adult. And you see increasingly what happens in this country demographically is that younger people don't actually uh, identify themselves as adult until they get to be about 30 years old. Then they start to be adult and then they start to think, OK, I'm an adult now. What do what is adulting? They've given it a verb now. It used to be you're an adult. Now you adult. It is an it's a verb. I'm going to go adulting, not adultering. I'm going to go adulting. I'm going to go be an adult. I'm going to do adult things. And what do they know from adults? Well, they know adults from their parents and grandparents. And what do their parents and grandparents do? Well, they listen to news talk radio and they subscribe to newspapers. So the the 25 to 30-year-old may listen to the morning zoo, and then when they get to be 30, they're like, man, my parents wouldn't listen to that to get informed, and now I'm making real money, and i got to be informed. I'm not listening to the shock jock morning zoo nonsense. I need to actually be informed. I need analysis. I need data. And so they go subscribe to their local newspaper, and they, they turn on their local news talk station where they hear a guy like me who's telling you what's actually important and weeding through the BS nonsense and the partisan spin from some of the red meat hacks out there who just want to give you the RNC talking points and actually instead of, instead of making you smart, I'm at least trying to make you more educated than your circle of friends. But along the way has come the collapse of local newspapers, and I think they're going to rebound to some degree because you've got young people who are now so attached to nostalgia and what their parents and grandparents did. They're going in in search of newspapers, and they're not finding the local newspaper, so they're subscribing to the AJC or the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or the like.
All of that is to get me full circle to priapism. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes. After after me saying I'm going to make y'all. We're, we're going to the, the 12 hour. Well, I, I don't even want to say the word on the radio, folks. But so the local newspaper, I, all of this is to limit the, the decline of newspapers and the local newspaper where I live. There is no story today in the middle Georgia or the, the Columbus, Georgia newspaper about an outbreak of coronavirus in the state of Georgia. If you go to the go to the newspaper in Athens or Augusta or Savannah or Rome or or Atlanta, you will find stories. But nope, not not these McClatchy papers. But they do have this story in both the, the Columbus Ledger Inquirer and the Macon Telegraph. And I'm just going to read it. And I'm sorry if it offends you. It is in the newspaper. And if it's in the newspaper, I'm allowed to read it and I can't get in trouble. So I'm going to read it. A team of Georgia doctors claim marijuana use is likely to blame for a man's persistent and painful erection. According to a case report published in the Journal of Cannabis Research in February 2020, a 32-year-old man made two trips to Coliseum Medical Centers in Macon, Georgia, with complaints of a longer-than-normal one. One of them lasted 12 hours, and the episodes were so severe, the doctors had to give the man injections— there! They had to eject him there! The authors, who worked for Coliseum Medical Centers, Mercer University in Macon, Georgia, and Southeast Urology Associates in Macon, and Envision Physician Services of Nashville, say in the report that it is the first known case of cannabis-associated priapism in a patient where all other known causes of priapism have been excluded. Priapism is a medical term used to describe, well... Long-lasting ones related, not related to sexual stimulation. If, if untreated, the condition can cause permanent loss of function. Ouch. The man was otherwise healthy. He reports that as a teenager, uh, evaluations for sickle cell and anemia came back negative. These conditions can cause priapism. He took no psychiatric or blood pressure medications. A drug screen found no drug use besides marijuana. Drug-induced priapism is common among adults with injected erectile dysfunction drugs being a leading cause. The patient, however, was able to link his marijuana use with the problem. He told doctors he had had them and they lasted less than four hours and never required medical treatment when he was a teenager. When he was a teenager, he quit using marijuana in his 20s and had no episodes at all. But in the emergency room, he admitted to smoking marijuana several nights a week for the past six months, including within a two hour period prior to this happening. He was referred to a urologist, and my goodness, he had to have a needle placed there to stop that. Y'all, this is the big local story in Georgia today. It's in two different newspapers in two parts of the state and not the coronavirus. <laughs> wow. Wow, yes, we've hit a new low here. We've hit it. We hadn't even been on the, we hadn't been in, uh, we're going to have like, we're going to lose affiliates, aren't we, for this? <laughs> Wow. I, I just, I got to tell you, um, local news matters and it, here's local news that you need. Now, in other newspaper news, the, the New York Times has a piece out. 
No politics till the seventh date. How journalists try to stay impartial. Times reporters and editors take careful measures in their personal lives to remain objective in their work. And this is the New York Times actually doing an entire deep dive interview with various reporters and editors of the New York Times on how they manage to stay impartial. And most of it is they don't vote. They don't vote. Uh, Here's the thing, though. I follow some of these reporters on social media, and they are some of the most reliably progressive people I've ever encountered. They are reliably progressive on tax increases, reliably uh, progressive on the use and size and scope of the federal government, reliably progressive on abortion, reliably progressive on their hostility to faith. And oh, my goodness, they just don't vote. So they must be impartial. Praise Jesus. Here's the reality, people. The idea that these reporters are impartial because they don't vote shows you everything that's wrong with the New York Times and how it approaches impartiality. The, the New York Times reporters and editors tend to live in a progressive bubble in Manhattan where they rarely encounter a middle-class soul. Many of them have drivers. Many of them uh, are, are paid well over $100,000 a year. They are out of touch with your average person. They are surrounded in a progressive bubble with a bunch of progressives who believe progressive things and none of them go to church. And so it forms their worldview. It is not impartial to not vote for a candidate. What is impartial is to realize you have biases and you want to proceed accordingly to understand your biases and dive deep to try to get some fairness and balance in what you cover. And that's not actually happening at the New York Times. And increasingly, there's a story in the New York Times about how the New York Times now has more subscribers than all other major news outlets combined, including USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, Politico and Axios. The New York Times has more subscribers than all of them. Well, the New York Times being subscriber base is being led by their subscribers because they're no longer advertiser based. They are instead based on what their subscribers want to hear. They've got to be more reliably progressive because the average person who subscribes to the New York Times actually is a progressive. And so if they publish news that progressives don't like, they're hit with unsubscribe. So they can't do that. And that shapes their biases. It's just a bunch of nonsense to say, oh, my reporter never votes. Therefore, you can trust him. No, you're reporter lives in a left-wing bubble surrounded by progressives who never go to church, has never encountered anyone in the middle class, and rarely leaves Manhattan to see the rest of the country, and and has no relationship to what they derisively refer to as flyover country, don't tell me they're not partisan. And these are the people helping shape the news. You know, Fox News would not be successful. The, The media makes some sort of sinister conspiracy theory out of Fox News. Fox News would not be a successful company if the news media were not biased. Fox News can only exist in a world where the majority of the mainstream media believes that it is not biased and actually is and shapes its news accordingly. And they look at Fox News and they say, well, there's the bias. Fox is the biased one. And Fox does look decisively biased in not just its opinion stuff at night, but in what it covers during the day, because all of the rest of the media is so in a progressive bubble, anyone not in the progressive bubble looks biased to them. And yet Fox News is crushing them in the TV ratings. 
And in the newspaper ratings, the Wall Street Journal actually does a fairly good job with a conservative editorial board. It holds its own. It may not be as big as the New York Times, but it certainly has strength out there, even if I frankly think that the Wall Street Journal editorial board has gotten too squishy over the years. Man, I, I so I just saw this story. It is on uh, it, it's on Twitter. A, a buddy of mine, Michael Depish, put this up. I, I know him. Um, we've hung out together. He's in Nashville, and his apartment was hit by the tornado. Uh, some he's he tweets, "I'm okay." Somehow made it into the tub before my entire roof ripped off. Not a scratch on me. Everything is gone. Thank God for severe weather alerts, quick reflexes, and renter's insurance. Good gracious. Uh, the people in Nashville falling out from this. Uh, as we're headed out of here today, the, the the Federal Reserve announced they were going to cut interest rates a half percentage point. They wanted to quell market turmoil. We had a big rebound yesterday in the market, but the Dow's back down right now 248 points, uh, 248.44 points. The NASDAQ is down 65 points. New York Stock Exchange overall down 114 points. That may rebound by the end of the day as, as we continue to get word around the country of what's going on with the coronavirus. And who knows? I, I still suspect tomorrow you may see if if Joe Biden has a good night tonight, I suspect what you're going to see is uh, market calming tomorrow that they've stopped Bernie Sanders. Now, what should you look for tonight? This is important. Uh, Virginia and North Carolina will be some of the first uh, votes to come in t- tonight. It is Super Tuesday. Uh, we will have uh, races that stretch across the country, but some of the very first ones, Massachusetts, uh, North Carolina, and Virginia will come in uh, late in the day. We'll find Texas. Remember, Texas is cut into two time zones, so it'll be somewhat delayed. Uh, but we will start to see this spread across the country. Now, do you know where Super Tuesday comes from? The very first Super Tuesday uh, was in 1976. It was Ronald Reagan versus Gerald Ford. It was referred to by the New York Times as Super Tuesday. And they split six different states. Uh, Reagan won three and, and um, Ford won three. And the Republicans knew they had a race. But Super Tuesday became a real thing in 1980. Ted Kennedy decided to challenge Jimmy Carter for the Democratic nomination. And three Southern governors got together in Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. And they decided that they would come together early in March and they would all go for Jimmy Carter. They knew because he was a Southern, uh, had been a Southern governor, the governor of Georgia, now president. And that would give the Democrats, because back then those three states had a large number of delegates. California was still Republican back then. And those three states would give it to Jimmy Carter. And so those three states declared they were going to have a Super Tuesday and save the Democratic Party from Ted Kennedy. And thereafter, Super Tuesday largely became a tool of party establishments to stop upstarts. Now, in 2016, Brian Kemp decided he was going to create what he called the SEC primary. It was going to be a bunch of southern states. Uh, they, they weren't viewing it as a way to stop or help any particular candidate. They just want to get all the southern states together to give them more clout because other states like Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, South Carolina, Nevada is still kind of reign supreme. And they wanted to get these other states as close as possible so that they would matter even more in terms of, of giving delegates to candidates. And this year, the Democrats, of course, have a Super Tuesday today. 
Alabama, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Vermont, and Virginia. The largest number of states on the ballot at one time until November when everybody goes together. And Bernie Sanders is expected to do very well, uh, and he will rack up more delegates, and he will be in the lead, but the Democrats will continue to consolidate. Elizabeth Warren will probably drop out tomorrow after Bernie Sanders beats her in Massachusetts, which he's expected to do. The question is, does she go with Sanders where her heart is, or does she go with Biden where her head is? We will find out tomorrow, and tomorrow I will give you the play-by-play. I'll take your phone calls as well tomorrow. I'm sure you'll have a lot of questions about what happened on Super Tuesday. No big no big secret in the Republican side. Donald Trump is largely the only one on the ballot. But, man, this is going to be a fight for the Democrats. And Mike Bloomberg, in a press conference about five minutes ago, said he is not going anywhere. So stay tuned, folks, and have a great day.